It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Salam alaikum, peace be upon you. Welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 150, Teenage Hunting Fighting Pharaoh. This is the penultimate chapter in the life of King Tutankhamun. The ruler of Egypt, Tutankhamun died young, a life cut short. Today, we explore the final records for his life, specifically his pastimes and hobbies. Apparently, Tutankhamun loved sports. This episode comes to you on behalf of Parijat, Brian, and Michelle. They kindly joined the show as annual members on Patreon. A truly wonderful gift. May Horus in the sky guide your aim and eye. May Sobek, the crocodile in the waters, protect you from danger. To everyone listening, thank you for joining me. Come, let us prepare the weapons, ready the horses, and hop on the chariot. It is time for Pharaoh's Day Out. The year was 1335 BCE, approximately. It was regnal year 9, under the majesty of Tutankhamun, the living Horus, the king of Egypt. The ruler was 18 years old, give or take, and being a young, energetic male, he had various interests. Being a wealthy, privileged individual, he could explore those interests at leisure. Within his tomb, archaeologists found objects related to the hunting and fighting activities of Tutankhamun. There were various weapons, like bows and arrows, throwing sticks and slings. There were vehicles, like chariots. There was even armor and shields, protective equipment for the king to use. Basically, the treasures of Tutankhamun included a small arsenal, tools he could use to hunt animals and people. Additionally, many items from his tomb contained images related to the hunt. Apparently, Tutankhamun was a keen sportsman, or at least he presented that image to the world. In this episode, I want to discuss some of these ideas and the evidence for Tutankhamun's violent pursuits. We will touch mainly on hunting, but also a little bit on fighting. And of course, we will look at the chariots, the sports cars that Tutankhamun rode in life and eternity. Apparently, young Tutankhamun had an element of the teenage playboy. So combining objects and art, historians can reconstruct some of Tutankhamun's daily life, his activities, things he may have enjoyed in the final years of his life. First up, let's talk about the art. Tutankhamun left many images of hunting and war. These come from his treasures, the various objects in his tomb. The first and most renowned image is a box a wooden chest, brightly painted, that was in his chambers. 
On the surface, the box showed Tutankhamun engaged in violent pursuits. On two sides of this chest, we see the king at war. On the lid, we see Tutankhamun hunting. And on the ends of the box, we see Tutankhamun as a sphinx, trampling over his enemies. Basically, every side of this box either shows a hunt or a battle. And the images, the designs, all parallel one another. So this painted box is a great place to start when considering the image of the hunt. On one side of the lid, the box shows Tutankhamun in his chariot. The king rides at full gallop and he draws his bow, ready to kill. Above him, a pair of falcons, birds of prey, stretch out their wings to protect and empower him. Behind the king, rows of soldiers and servants follow. Pharaoh is surrounded by images of power, divine power, and military power. The power to kill, the power to conquer. Driving forward, Tutankhamun hunts his prey. Animals stampede before him. We see ibexes, a kind of wild goat, and large, flightless birds. The animals scramble desperately, while Tutankhamun looses the arrows. Beneath his chariot, the king's dogs attack one of the ibexes. It is a violent scene. The pharaoh is triumphant over nature. The other side of the lid shows Tutankhamun chasing a more dangerous game. This time, the king in his chariot goes up against lions. Again, we see Tutankhamun with falcons above and soldiers behind. He drives forward, and his arrows pierce the bodies of his prey. Dogs leap onto a corpse. The lions, both male and female, flee before the pharaoh's power. However, one lion fights back. A male with a thick yellow mane turns to face Tutankhamun. This lion raises a paw, and he opens his jaws, roaring defiance at the king. Of course, Pharaoh is ready. From his chariot, Tutankhamun has already hit the animal twice. The lion's paw raised up is pierced by one arrow. Another has entered his mouth. So as the beast roars defiance and prepares to strike, the king's arrows find their targets. No matter what, Tutankhamun is triumphant. As you can guess, all this imagery paints a brave picture of the king. Tutankhamun, the living Horus, brings down his foes. Animals and humans are powerless before the pharaoh, the ruler of southern and northern Egypt. They can fight, or they can run. Either way, the great king will bring them low. So the lid shows Tutankhamun hunting. The rest of the box has a military angle. On the sides of this chest, we see Tutankhamun engaged in battle. Once again, the king rides his chariot, hunting down his prey. This time, the game is not lions or antelope, it is humans. On one side, we see southerners from Wawat and Kush. On the other, northerners from Canaan and Syria. They all flee before Tutankhamun's chariot. The king draws his bow, shooting these people down like animals. As he charges forward, his horses throw the enemy soldiers into disarray. Basically, the Egyptian pharaoh dominates the human world as easily as nature. The meaning is clear. Images of hunting and combat are nearly identical. The mighty ruler strikes down all foes. The enemy may come in different forms, but the living Horus triumphs over all. It is a fantasy, but a powerful one. So the painted box or chest displays an idea of Tutankhamun in the hunt. He goes into the wilderness to strike down his prey. 
but other images from other objects give a more relaxed picture of hunting. From some of the king's treasures, we see him engaged in more domestic forms of this pursuit. In episode 147, I introduced a small golden shrine. This was in the king's tomb, and it probably belonged to Queen Ankh Esen Amun. The gold shrine has many images of the queen attending to her husband. Ankh Esen Amun cares for and praises Tutankhamun. There are scenes of ritual, domestic life, and possibly romantic or sexual themes. But there are also images of hunting. Very quickly, let us see how Tutankhamun and Ankh Esen Amun worked together to capture prey. The gold shrine has two images of the hunt. The first one shows Tutankhamun and Ankesanamun on a boat. They ride a small skiff, a papyrus boat, through the reeds and the marshes. The queen kneels at the front, or prow, of the boat. Tutankhamun stands at the stern. In one hand, Tutankhamun clutches a brace of ducks. These are his tool. The king holds live ducks so that their squawking and flapping will scare the other birds. As Tutankhamun clutches these decoys, the wild ducks will hopefully startle and take flight. Then, when the birds emerge from the reeds, the king will strike. We see the hunt in a moment of action. Tutankhamun holds his decoys, who flap their wings and squawk. Ahead, the papyrus reeds part, and a flight of birds are emerging. Tutankhamun is ready. With his free hand, the king raises a throwing stick. This is a short club, bent and designed for throwing. With skill and careful aim, Tutankhamun will let this stick fly to strike down his prey. On the shrine, we see the king just before he lets loose, but presumably he was triumphant every time. The second image is slightly different. This time, the king and queen have left their tiny boat and gone ashore. We see Tutankhamun and Ankes and Amun sitting on a riverbank or island. The king is resting on a small folding stool, but he is not idle. Instead, while he sits patiently, Tutankhamun draws his bow and arrow. He is waiting on his hunting chair for the prey to emerge. We see them up ahead. Before the king, a papyrus thicket parts, and a flock of ducks emerge. They take flight, but Tutankhamun is ready. He has already loosed one arrow, and a duck tumbles from the sky with a shaft through its body. Another bird has an arrow emerging from its neck. Apparently, the king's aim is sharp. Like a true pharaoh, he strikes swiftly and without error. While Tutankhamun targets his prey, he is not alone. Just in front of the king, Ankesen Amun sits upon the ground. The queen squats, resting on a cushion, and she turns back to assist Tutankhamun. In one hand, Ankes and Amun holds forth an arrow, so as the pharaoh takes aim, his next shaft is ready and waiting. As the queen passes him the arrow, she also points out another target. With her left hand, Ankes and Amun points at the papyrus thicket. Her finger aims directly at a nest. A group of ducklings hiding in the reeds are squawking. Well, Ankes and Amun alerts her husband to their presence and she passes an arrow so he can shoot them. Basically, Tutankhamun lets the arrows fly, while Ankes and Amun finds the targets. The king and queen hunt together. The Golden Shrine has evocative images, detailed scenes of life and leisure. Of course, the picture of Tutankhamun hunting is idealized, 
the reality may have been quite different. Nevertheless, this golden shrine gives us an idea of the way Pharaoh and the queen wanted to appear, or at least the way they were supposed to appear. Before we move on, there is one detail I have to mention. While Tutankhamun and Ankesenamun hunt with the bow and arrow, they are still not alone. You see, there is a third character in this tableau. While hunting, the king and queen took a pet. We see this animal sitting by Tutankhamun's chair. What is it? Well, it's a pet lion. Just below Tutankhamun's chair, a small lion watches the scene. It seems to be male, and apparently tame. The lion cub wears a collar around its mane. That collar attaches to a leash, which may be attached to the king's chair. In short, this little lion seems to be a pet, accompanying the king and queen on their hunting trip, which is kind of remarkable. I don't support keeping lions as pets, but the artistic detail is delightful. So we have art showing Tutankhamun in the hunt. The king draws his bow or throwing stick, targeting animals and bringing them down. But that's just imagery. How do we know that he actually did it? Well, thanks to the survival of his tomb, we also have the king's weapons. Tutankhamun's grave contained many tools that he could use in hunting. There were weapons, ammunition, and various items of protection. All of these put together give a sense of a young ruler who really enjoyed the hunt. First up, we have Tutankhamun's bows. The king liked bows. His tomb had 29 of them, along with several hundred arrows. There were multiple types of bows, including simple or self-bows, and complex or composite bows. These weapons could strike foes up to 150 meters away, or more. Some bows were as tall as Tutankhamun himself. There was even a child-sized bow, just 64 centimeters long. So whatever his need, whatever his age, the king had a weapon. Along with bows and arrows, Tutankhamun had accessories. He had gloves to protect his hands, and braces to protect his wrists. High-quality pieces, useful for a king on the hunt. Basically, if the Egyptian hunter used it, Tutankhamun probably had one. Of course, weapons are not just for hunting, they are also tools of war. I will cover those in greater detail another time. But long story short, Tutankhamun's burial had all the tools he could possibly need. Whether it was birds, beasts, or humans, Tutankhamun had the tools to kill. From one perspective, his tomb was kind of an arsenal. Finally, there were throwing sticks, weapons made of wood that Tutankhamun could throw at his prey. Within his tomb, the king had 34 throwing sticks. They came in two varieties. One type was a single shot. These sticks flew straight, but they did not return. So they were great for accuracy, but you had to collect them afterwards. And if they fell in the Nile, well, that was probably that. Then there were the returning sticks, which today we might call boomerangs. Tutankhamun had some lovely boomerangs, including pieces made of ivory. With these, he could throw a curve shot. The stick would arc upwards through the air, and then return to the hand of the thrower. They could be very useful. The downside to a boomerang is that they require space for the stick to arc and complete its journey. In areas like the delta, where reeds and trees are bountiful, 
Egyptian hunters would have trouble with these tools. So Tutankhamun had different items for different needs, boomerangs and straighter sticks. Presumably, he used these in different environments. Of course, boomerangs are most famous today as an icon of the indigenous peoples of Australia. Tutankhamun's tools are shallower than the classic boomerang, quote-unquote, but the idea is the same. Aim, throw, and catch. It requires great skill, but the learned hunter can excel with these tools. I just hope Tutankhamun never experienced a situation like this. I'll stop them! Oh no! It's coming back this way! That throwing stick stun of yours has boomeranged on us! To fans of Australia or The Simpsons, my apologies. I couldn't resist. Tutankhamun carried many weapons into the afterlife. He had all the tools he could need to bring down animals. When we put the weapons together with the art, we get a sense of a young king who was active in the hunt. Together with Ankes and Amun, the pharaoh could chase his prey through the delta. With a pet lion at his side, Tutankhamun could bring down birds of all kinds. Of course, there were other ways to hunt as well. Not all prey are birds among the reeds. After the break, we will see how Tutankhamun chased down the faster prey. We know that the king probably went hunting across the desert and the savannah. Armed with his bow and arrow, the young ruler could hunt many different beasts. Again, we will get images of this from his tomb. But we also have the tools. In chapter 2, we'll follow the king as he gears up and hops on his chariot. It is time to hunt across the desert. That is after the break. See you in a moment. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Around 1335 BCE, King Tutankhamun enjoyed the life of a teenage ruler. He was rich, well-equipped, and he had time for leisure and pursuits. Art from his tomb shows the king engaged in various hunting activities, and weapons preserved in his burial give a hint at his tools. Easily the most glamorous treasures are Tutankhamun's chariots. The wooden, two-wheeled vehicles drawn by horses were the sports cars of their day. Tutankhamun owned several chariots, and they showed up in his tomb. Thanks to the work of conservationists, restorers, and scholars, we have a good idea of the pharaoh's hunting cars. Tutankhamun had six chariots in his tomb. Four of these were the day-to-day vehicles. Light, not too fancy, but serviceable. The other two were ceremonial, covered in gold, highly decorated the sort to use in a parade or a public event. I am going to ignore the ceremonial chariots for today and focus on the lighter ones. Let's call these the hunting chariots. 
Tutankhamun's hunting chariots are not much to look at. They are simple, wooden frames with large gaps or holes in the body. That may sound unusual. In art, Egyptian chariots often appear as solid constructions, a wooden platform and a curved frame around the front. Fair enough, some chariots do look like that. But the hunting chariots are more skeletal. Instead of thick, heavy bodies, we have a kind of frame. The builders would construct the outline in wood. Then they stretched leather over the gaps. Imagine a chair where the legs and back have a basic shape, but the flat surfaces, the seat and the back, are hollow. Stretch some leather or fabric over the empty space, and you have a stable but lighter item. The idea was to emphasize speed and stability. So the hunting chariots are not pleasure cars, but more like the Millennium Falcon. They may not look like much, but they've got it where it counts, kid. The hunting chariots were not funerary items, objects made for the tomb. In fact, they have the marks of daily use. Some of the chariots have wear and tear on the wheels and so forth. Two of them even have evidence for repairs. So you can imagine the pharaoh sending his sports car to the mechanics. Skilled chariot makers would repair any damage and replace certain parts. Every now and again, these vehicles needed a tune-up. The chariots were made of wood and leather. Most of the leather is gone, but archaeologists can study other chariots to get a sense of the build. We know that the ancient chariots had coverings over the empty spaces in the frame, and we know that the chariot makers used leather to tie certain parts together. But the most interesting feature, I think, is that Tutankhamun's chariots may have had tires. The ancient chariot makers could add tires by stretching leather around the wheel. This leather was unprocessed, aka rawhide. The idea was to dip the rawhide in water, wrap it around the wheel, and then let it dry. As the rawhide dried out, it shrank, and after a day in the sun, the wheel would have a tight leather tire. Perfect for high-velocity use. Personally, I think that's awesome. With a light frame and good tires, these chariots probably got a decent speed. And you have to wonder, did the pharaohs ever race their chariots? That is unknown. Because ancient art tends to be formal and idealized, there are certain activities we just don't see very often. In this case, chariot racing is, to my knowledge, absent from ancient Egyptian art. However, let's be realistic. Anyone riding a chariot would surely be tempted to pick up the speed now and again. For Tutankhamun, a wealthy and energetic teenager, racing must have been a temptation. He had privilege and resources. At some point, I think we can imagine him taking his vehicle to the limit. So although we don't have any records or pictures of racing, personally, I think it probably happened. At the very least, it must have been informal occasionally. Even if they never had ceremonial or formal racing events, the temptation to try and outrace your partner must have been quite strong. Surely they did it now and again. Anyway, that is the physical reality of the hunting chariots. They are light, made of wood, with leather parts and tires. From that, we can build a mental image. We can picture the pharaoh, Tutankhamun, whooping with delight, his chariot speeds across the ground, the wheels bounce and the vehicle shakes, but the light, flexible construction gives stability. The young king could hunt at high speed with bow and arrow in hand. Crossing the wilderness, he would seek his prey. 
The chariots give us the object, but how did Tutankhamun actually hunt? Well, a couple of images from his tomb show the king engaged in this pursuit. The best image comes from a golden fan, an object designed to hold feathers and wave a breeze at the young king. This gold fan was in Tutankhamun's burial chamber. In fact, it was placed within the shrines that enclosed his sarcophagus, so it was close to his body in eternity. As we will see, this fan may have been a treasured item. The fan is made of wood and covered with gold. On each side, it has decorative pictures showing the hunt. On one side, we see Tutankhamun racing, horses at full gallop. The king stands alone in his chariot, and with his left hand, he holds a bow. With his right, he draws back the string and readies his arrow. We see Tutankhamun in the moment of tension, as he prepares to let loose. Ahead of the king, Tutankhamun's prey run full tilt. A pair of terrestrial or land-based birds are fleeing, the chariot and the king. These birds have long legs, short wings, and extended necks. They run ahead of the king's chariot, fleeing full tilt. They do their best, but sadly, Tutankhamun's arrows have already flown. One of the birds crumples to the ground, its head raised in a dying squawk. The other bird turns its head to look at the king, and an arrow extends from its flank. The bird is injured, and from his chariot, Tutankhamun draws his bow to finish the job. We see the king in his moment of triumph. The prey are overwhelmed, feeble, ready to fall. Like the victorious conqueror, Tutankhamun prepares to end the lives of these birds. His chariot speeds forward. The horses raise their legs in a gallop. Besides his cart, Tutankhamun's dog leaps forward to assist. It is a classic scene. You'll find versions of this in many tombs, temples, and treasure. The pharaoh, triumphant, brings low his prize. The fan's other side shows the results of the hunt. Now, we see Tutankhamun after the chase has ended. In this scene, Tutankhamun rides his chariot slowly. The horses calmly trot along. The king is smiling, clearly pleased with himself. Under one arm, he clutches a brace of feathers. Apparently, Tutankhamun has plucked feathers from the birds. Now, he carries these with him as he rides. Ahead of the king, a pair of servants lead the way. Two men, wearing kilts and wigs, carry the birds that Pharaoh has killed. They each drape one bird over their shoulders. The feet dangle over the right shoulder, the heads over the left. The men smile like the king. Everyone is happy with the hunt. How lovely. The golden fan shows Tutankhamun in triumph. He defeats his prey, then brings their corpses back to Egypt. Like the military images we saw earlier, the pharaoh has conquered nature and asserted his power. Like a bird of prey, like Horus, Tutankhamun rules the desert. For those curious, the birds on this fan are probably a species called bustard. Bustards used to be common across North Africa and Arabia, but hunting reduced their numbers. Bustards are a medium-sized bird, small enough that a person could carry them individually, but large enough to make good targets. You will often see this fan referenced as the ostrich fan, but a study in the 1970s suggested that ostriches would be far too large for the kind of images we see, so these birds might actually be bustards. That is purely a technical tiny detail, but some of you may be interested. So we see Tutankhamun hunting birds and then bringing their corpses back to Egypt. 
There is one more detail that brings the art and the reality together. In the pictures, we see Tutankhamun carrying the feathers under one arm. Apparently, these are the feathers that originally adorned the fan. The fan has a long handle, and it bears an inscription in hieroglyphs. The text is short, but informative. It says, quote, Feathers brought back by his majesty when hunting on the desert east of Heliopolis. End quote. In other words, the golden fan bore the same feathers that we see Tutankhamun carrying. The feathers themselves are lost. When Howard Carter and his team found this object, the feathers were still in place. But after 3,000 years, they had decayed. So the second excavators touched them or tried to preserve them, they crumbled to dust. As a result, the identity of the feathers is unknown, which is a shame. But at the very least, we can say that this golden fan once had long feathers attached. And apparently, these were the items that Tutankhamun himself brought from the hunt. It is another cool moment where the art reflects the story. Tutankhamun had many chariots in his tomb, along with the weapons for hunting. Then, treasures show images of the king pursuing the animals. Putting these sources together, we get a sense of young Tutankhamun engaged in the hunt. But one last question remains. Where did Tutankhamun go for these pursuits? Well, funnily enough, we do have a couple of clues. The golden fan that I just mentioned shows Tutankhamun, quote, hunting on the desert east of Heliopolis, end quote. In other words, we know that Tutankhamun made a few trips to the eastern desert. Leaving the city of the sun, Heliopolis or Iyunu, the pharaoh would take his chariot out among the hills and dunes. Between the Nile River and the Red Sea, Tutankhamun could pursue his game. On the western side of the river, we have other clues. You see, in the 1920s, excavations at Giza revealed evidence for Tutankhamun. Specifically, we know the young pharaoh went hunting and visited the Sphinx. Through the early 20th century, an Egyptian archaeologist named Selim Hassan led numerous digs at the Sphinx. He cleared sand, removed rubble, and explored the foundations of this monument. Hassan was particularly interested in finding the origins of the Sphinx, and his work continues to be a valuable resource for serious researchers. But in the course of his excavations, Hassan found many items from later in Egyptian history. In previous episodes, I have described some of the monuments that kings of Dynasty 18 erected at the Sphinx. Rulers like Amunhotep II and Tutmose IV left art and shrines at the monument. Apparently, Egyptians and pharaohs treated this statue as an avatar of that deity. The Sphinx went by many names, but it seemed to evoke that symbolism. So many kings built small monuments around this statue. Tutankhamun followed that trend. In the course of their work, Hassan's team found a monument of Tutankhamun. Stone blocks forming the lintel and sides of a door emerged from the sand. These blocks bore the name of Nebkeparura, aka Tutankhamun. Apparently, they came from a building that he commissioned. The blocks bore hieroglyphs referencing the king and the queen. They also referenced the building to which they belonged. Apparently, Tutankhamun established a rest house at the Great Sphinx, 
a small building with facilities for washing and relaxing. If the king was in the vicinity, perhaps riding his chariot, he could stop near the Sphinx for a break. The blocks associate Tutankhamun with the Sphinx, specifically the sun god who lived within the statue. On these blocks, we find a reference to the king as, quote, the beloved of Hauron. Hauron is an interesting deity, whom I will introduce another time. Long story short, Hauron is a solar god, who probably came from other lands, and he was associated with the sun deity, and the sphinx in particular. So, young Tutankhamun may have come to the statue of the sun god, the sphinx, aka Rahorakti, or Hauron. The king, on his chariot, could stop at a rest house and make offerings to the great deity. We can imagine young Tutankhamun approaching the sphinx, walking over the sands that partially buried it, he could honour the deity and the statue. So, the next time you look at this famous monument, imagine the young pharaoh standing in its shadow. Nearby, his chariot waits patiently. King Tutankhamun, a teenage ruler, had access to wealth and privilege. He could enjoy long days in the wilderness. He could use high-quality weapons like bows and throwing sticks. His servants would collect his trophies and carry them on his behalf. In the marshes, the young pharaoh could ride a papyrus boat. With his wife, Ankesen Amun, he could stalk the birds and fish of the waterways. Out in the deserts, Tutankhamun could ride his chariot at full speed. He could chase game, loosing arrows at birds and beasts. If he was lucky, Tutankhamun might bring down powerful animals indeed. We also see the connection between hunting and war. Tutankhamun demonstrated his victory over animals, and he used the same imagery to convey military power. His chariot rode down antelope and foreigners alike. From the visual perspective, the king's enemies were all equal. Humans and animals alike belonged to the chaotic world. Tutankhamun, the mighty pharaoh, brought them all down with his arrows. The relationship between hunting game and hunting people is strong in Egyptian art. This helps us to understand more about their mindset, and particularly the iconography of the pharaohs. Finally, Tutankhamun may have enjoyed a race. He probably spent time at Giza, riding his chariot near the Sphinx and the Pyramids. He stopped there occasionally to rest and to honour the great god, Horus in the horizon, Hauron embodied in the Sphinx, with the wind in his face, a bow in his hands, and a falcon in the sky, the king could rejoice in the thrill of the chase, or of the race. If he did, that may have been a problem for Tutankhamun at one point. I will come back to this next episode. But long story short, Tutankhamun's love of hunting and chariots may have been a factor in his untimely death. Next time, we tell the tale that many people have anticipated. The death of Tutankhamun and all of the questions around it. How did he pass? Was it an accident, an illness, or even a murder? Many scholars have their ideas next time, I will review the evidence. 
Before I go, I should give my thanks to Kyla, Evan, Kendra, Jason, Andrew, TJ, Terry, and Linda. These fine folks are the priest-level supporters on Patreon, for which I am most grateful. Thanks to them, I can afford to maintain purity and keep myself clean on my endless hunting trips in the desert. I can afford a high-speed chariot, by which I mean public transport, and I can afford bows and arrows, by which I mean pens and paper? I don't know, that metaphor kind of trailed off there. Anyway, thank you so much for your support. And to all of you listening, thank you for hearing these stories. I love sharing this material, and I love that people are interested. That's all from me. I will see you soon. Take care, and may Horus guide your arrows. May you find your target, whatever you are seeking. The History of Egypt podcast is a member of the Agora Podcast Network. Visit agorapodcastnetwork.com to see more shows from my colleagues. Also, you can find reference material and images for today's episode at egyptianhistorypodcast.com. And you can support the show at patreon.com slash egyptpodcast. Thank you for listening. On to the next chapter. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.